this is Accent, the Air University Teaching and Learning Center podcast. At Accent, we make connections between teachers, learners, and ideas in military education. The opinions, conclusions, and recommendations expressed or implied in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of Air University, the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or any other U.S. government agency. Follow us online at www.airuniversity.af.edu slash TLC or on Twitter at Air Teaching for more. Good morning. This is Dr. Megan J. Hennessy. I'm the director of the Air University Teaching and Learning Center here to host the Axon podcast. And our guest today is Major Dan Kaiser. Hi, Major Kaiser. Hey, how are you doing today? I'm good. So you are an AETC master instructor, uh, which means you are in the right place to talk to us about teaching and learning. You're also an intel officer, a husband, a father, and a neurodiverse airman. So you're going to talk to us a little bit about neurodiversity today. Um, I understand you're diagnosed with autism and ADHD in 2020. And tell us more. What is neurodiversity So neurodiversity is an umbrella term, um, taking everything from autism spectrum disorder, um, bipolar disorder, uh, Tourette's, ADHD, dyslexia, dysgraphia, dyscalculia, um, but it also has some other uh, what are called comorbidities, things like anxiety, things like sensory processing disorder, um, all kind of creating a unique neurotype. Uh, that allows neurodivergent individuals to see the world a little bit differently uh, with some strengths and some challenges associated with it on either end uh, that I'm excited to talk about today. Yes, thank you. I think um, it's good to all be on the same page about what exactly we're diving into here because it's not something that we hear much about in the military. Uh, Why do you think that is? So why don't we have more conversations about neurodiversity in the military? So I think there's two main reasons for that. Uh, First, if we look at society as a whole, um, going into the Center for Disease Control, uh, they track the metrics of diagnoses over the years. And uh, in the early 2000s, we were seeing metrics, uh, one in 155 children uh, being diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. Uh, Moving to some of the more recent estimates. Uh, I believe 2018 was one in 55, and I've heard one in 46 in some of the more recent ones. Um, Is it because there's more autistic people, or is it because we are diagnosing or assessing, rather, um, children for autism at an increased rate? And then from there, if that's the case, there is probably a very large section of the population that is undiagnosed as a result of kind of falling through the cracks, which is my situation. Now, in the military specifically, if we look at the DOD policy uh, that that outlines disqualifying conditions, ADHD is on there, but there are some caveats for some, you can't be medicated for however long, it can impact your ability to do your job, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there's opportunities uh, still with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. However, autism spectrum disorder is a blanket disqualifying condition. So if you have ever been diagnosed uh, with autism spectrum disorder and you are trying to join the military, 
that is automatic uh, no-go criteria. And we've seen in the news what happens if recruiters try to bury that or if we've seen if people fail to disclose that diagnosis that they have actually received. However, there's a large portion of the population that just straight up has has that that chronic anxiety like I've had and doesn't realize that it may be a small portion of a larger puzzle. I see. And you were diagnosed in 2020. How has that influenced your service? Looking at my service, anytime I've been vectored, anytime I've gotten feedback, I've gotten I've heard that I'm in the bottom third of my year group. And that's not due to academic issues. I've always done very well academically. Um, it's attributed largely to my inability to play uh, the social game, to navigate the social part of military service, um, making the right connections with the right people at the right times. That's because I struggled to interpret the social situations, the social cues. And I just thought it was because I was, you know, that weird kind of socially awkward guy that would rather go read a book or deep dive into amateur radio or something. It wasn't until I received that diagnosis and I was able to connect with other neurodivergent individuals and do some of that research on my own that I realized that I'm not weird. I'm just different uh, and my strengths lie elsewhere. So if I have the ability to understand my weaknesses and understand my strengths, I can pull, I can play the game a little bit more to 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 leverage my strengths. I see. And thank you for being, you know, vulnerable and humble enough to share your story with us. And clearly you are very successful. You're a deputy director of learning sciences and faculty education at the squadron officer school. Uh, And I understand that you're also using your experience as the neurodiversity line of effort lead for the department of the air force disability action team barriers analysis working group. Uh, That's a mouthful. (laughs) We just call it the bomb. Right. <laughs> yes. Can you tell us um, a little bit about that? Yeah. So as soon as I got my diagnosis, uh, the first thing I did was really try to understand what it was and try to quote unquote find my tribe. In doing so, I came across an article that was published by the Air Force uh, on neurodiversity, featuring uh, Master Sergeant Shale Norwitz. Master Sergeant Norwitz uh, was a uh, cyber uh, troop down at Robbins Air Force Base. And in his 19th year of service, he was diagnosed and uh, linked up with the uh, the disability action team, who at the time was uh, Miss Kendra Shock, um, and he established that this line of effort. Uh, and this line of effort is really to s- accept, support, and empower uh, neurodivergent individuals uh, within the military, operating under the assumption that there probably is a prevalence of undiagnosed. Uh, neurodivergent individuals within specific career fields and that their needs may not be met to the level that they need. Yes. Just from a teaching and learning perspective, I've had so many conversations over the years that lead me to say that the military and military education is not the best at differentiated instruction. So exactly what you said, just the requirements that different individuals need, not that the system can accommodate, but what what do the individual learners need in a military education context? So that's a great question. Um, And I actually came across an article uh, yesterday uh, that was talking about how uh, different neurotypes 
learn differently. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, as somebody who struggles with uh, auditory processing disorder, uh, as well as a light sensitivity, um, being in a fluorescent classroom, uh, having a conversation only uh, learning facilitation like we so often do in PME, a lot of times I would struggle to find the structure that I need in order to jump in and do those contributions. And I wind up doing my uh, my word vomit where I just say all the things, um, which doesn't necessarily look like a positive contribution uh, from some of those more standard neurotypes. Um, so with that being said, uh, visual learners engage differently than auditory learners. Um, and you aren't ever exclusively in one category. It's really what you need based upon how you're feeling at the time and what the topic is, right? So if we look at a concept like joint warfare versus a concept like leadership, one of them is much more uh, soft skills, whereas the other one is a lot more data-driven, policy-driven. We wouldn't teach those in the same way. We, we can leverage a lot of graphics. We can leverage a lot of videos in the, the joint warfare space uh, to communicate not only what uh, some of those fundamentals of warfare are, um, but why we care about them. Um, whereas if we look at leadership, uh, we talk a lot about case studies, about different models of leadership, different models of personality types. Honing in for a second on those personality types, even uh, most uh, professional military education schools uh, do some sort of personality assessment as a means to know your team. One thing that I am very cautious of when I teach and when I participate in personality studies is these studies were developed based upon a a pseudo random population but there's oftentimes not a not a fully uh, neurodivergent population in there so neurodivergent t- people if we're looking at the Myers-Briggs type indicator uh, may fall very heavily in that INTJ um, sort of personality type um, and as a result of that we think that that one size fits all oh you're an INTJ I know how to work with you um, people fall into that heuristic but they don't realize that there are some nuanced differences uh, where we really need to get into the individual and uh, and understand who our people are so that we can lead them appropriately. Dan, I feel like I need to let out an hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with everything you just said. I actually just completed MBTI certified practitioner training myself. And that was one of my main critiques about the program. Um, It was very interesting to consider from an individual coaching background, but I think just like learning styles, which have been debunked, you get into dangerous uh, territory when you lean so heavily into typological assessments. And I I think that's what you're saying. Am I on track there? Yes, ma'am. Okay. So, you know, your role is very interesting at SOS. You're, again, the Deputy Director for Learning Sciences and Faculty Education. So I imagine you have some influence in what SOS is doing uh, to accommodate and to work with and to advance neurodivergent learners. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. 
so I, uh, I, I am an advisor for the Air University Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion and Accessibility uh, Council. Um, I am also uh, pursuing a, a coaching certification through Lipscomb and a DEIA certification through uh, Cornell's e-learning. Um, hoping to use the things that I'm learning in those organizations uh, to bring neuroinclusivity into the instructional design process. Um, what I mean when I say that is creating opportunities uh, to provide multiple perspectives leveraging um, people who perceive the world differently. And that's not just a, a neurotype. That is English as a second, second language. That is maybe English as a third or fourth, fourth language. People that are hard of hearing, people that don't see as well. Um, there are things that we can do in a classroom to improve accessibility of the curriculum. Um, and it could be something as easy as leveraging uh, an AI transcription service um, to either create subtitles or to create translations so that people who may not be able to process auditory conversations as quickly as others uh, have the ability to participate in a way that they feel valued, ultimately uh, giving them that uh, psychological safety and sense of belonging in the classroom where they are not... Uh, punitively, I guess, affected uh, for a lack of contribution. Yes, or just for being different, right? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, does this track with universal design for learning standards that we hear a lot about in instructional design communities? So I believe so. Um, I've uh, I've taken the advanced principles of instructional design course uh, here uh, at SOS, working with uh, Doc Maggard from the Barnes Center. Mm -hmm. um, there is a a lot of room uh, to use some of those same uh, techniques that we talk about in coaching, the same techniques that we talk about in facilitation. Um, to give people those equal opportunities, and it can be something as uh, as Simple as classroom management, where we are looking at, hey, you don't need to have your laptops out right now. We're just going to have a conversation. Uh, what are some of the potential negative impacts of that, where people maybe need some of those resources available to them so that they can formulate a thought or need that transcription service so they can go back and see what the actual question was because my brain went a million different directions when you asked the question and I'm never 100% sure that I answered your actual question. Mm -hmm. um, there's opportunities in that classroom management space uh, to account for, uh, for an inclusive environment. And I think we're doing uh, the right things, training our leaders, training our educators um, to look out for those unconscious biases, uh, to vary questioning techniques, to use those visual aids in conjunction uh, with uh, the learning environment that they have available to them to optimize success for their students. Uh, that was a very roundabout way saying uh, yes. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Yeah, it, I mean, what you were saying kind of reminds me of instructors that I've seen in PME in various places over the years. 
taking offense if students are on their mobile devices or if they're not making consistent eye contact with the instructor. There's an assumption that the students are not listening um, or, you know, just that they're zoned out. With, uh, obviously, based on what you just shared, that's not the case. Um, something else that really interested me about what you just said was the, the varying types of questions that instructors might use. Can you give us a couple examples? Yes. Um, so if we look at how facilitators ask questions in a learning environment, it is a form of typically informal assessment to gauge whether or not you understand the material. Um, quite often, it is a fairly closed-ended question, but in order to facilitate conversation, we turn them into open-ended questions. Um, so looking at what are the domains of warfare, for instance, uh, somebody can list off space, cyberspace, land, maritime, air, um, but if we're actually having a conversation about why we care about those, um, using something to set the stage. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, the air domain. Uh, and from that air-minded perspective, what we can do uh, to support land maneuver, what we can do to support maritime maneuver, uh, and ultimately get after uh, the joint uh, force commander's intent. If, you, if we set the stage like that, and then we go into why we're talking about each domain, um, as a neurodivergent individual myself, that helps put me in the right headspace to not only have to go through and check uh, check off each one of the domains, um, but each one of the domains in context of our overall learning objective. So again, something as simple as highlighting those objectives up front. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you are you are speaking my language. <laughs> and all of this is obviously very much in alignment with outcomes-based military education and, and the conversations we're having around joint PME and um, standards and guidelines we've seen in the DOD instruction on military education that came out in April. Um, so thank you for giving us a different lens through which to view those conversations. Um, what you've shared has been so helpful. What kinds of resources would an individual PME instructor, let's say, need or what could they use to help them uh, ensure that they're reaching those neurodivergent learners? Oh, gosh, there are so many really great uh, resources out there. Um, I would say uh, the taking a look at what our uh, university uh, teammates in the on the civilian side are doing from an accessibility perspective is uh, is huge. Specifically, uh, Vanderbilt's Frist Center, um, taking a look at how they study neurodiversity and how they can uh, create a neuro inclusive environment in their classroom. There is a ton of resources um, out there from the Frist Center, the the Aussies, um, Latrobe, I think um have a uh, have another have a ton of really good academically uh minded resources for uh neurodivergence in the classroom mm -hmm. and looking even beyond that so once we leave this pme world 
Um, neurodiversity at work. Uh, there's a ton of playbooks out there for how to be an inclusive leader in a neurodivergent uh, environment. And that's ultimately something that we are trying to also create within the Air Force. Um, speaking with uh, General Brown um, last year at the uh, at one of his uh, diversity council meetings, uh, he is very interested in what uh, neurodivergent talent management looks like in the Air Force. Um, because of that, um, I, using my own kind of lens, uh, intel lens, I'm looking at, well, I know the intelligence community is already working to harness uh, some of those uh, creative talents of neurodivergent individuals. Uh, let's see what they're doing. Um, and in that, we looked at things like the Neurodiverse uh, Federal uh, Workforce Pilot Program, um, looked at uh, some other intelligence community agencies uh, and how they uh, effectively leverage uh, neurodivergent um, talents to get after some of those complex uh, STEM problems, uh, to do some unique types of analysis uh, that some of the more standard neurotypes aren't aren't geared for. Well, you can't leave us hanging. Tell us more. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, what we're doing, I'm working with the uh, 14N intelligence officer, career field manager. I am working with uh, ACCA6. Uh, I am working with half A26, all of those communities. And I am blowing up their phones saying, <laughs> hey, let's talk about neurodiversity. Let's talk about neurodiversity and what we can do to understand that we have people in our workforce whose needs aren't being met. Um, the joke that I've heard in the community is, uh, if you go to X agency, um, how can you tell that a specific individual is social? Though, well, they're looking at your shoes instead of their own. Um, <laughs> I've heard that. <laughs> yeah, we're looking at a lot of that. Uh, those undiagnosed um, neurodiverse comorbidities in there, that anxiety, that social phobia, uh, that adjustment disorder, um, and those those people's needs aren't being met because they don't know that they have needs that are different than your average person. And not only that, their leaders don't know. Mm -hmm. And because their leaders don't know, they rely very heavily on uh, some of those unconscious biases and some of those heuristics to lead in a way that would be effective for them, as opposed to leading in a way that would be effective for the people within their organization. So what are we doing about it? Um, going back to uh, what I was talking about with Master Sergeant Norwitz and our line of effort, uh, we basically have a three-pronged approach. Uh, the first being accept. Uh, we want the service, the services really, to acknowledge that there are neurodivergent people in our ranks and that neurodivergent people belong in our ranks so long as they have the ability to accomplish the mission in a manner in which we need the mission accomplished. Um, up next, support. Do our medical professionals uh, adequately trained to handle some of the unique challenges associated with neurodiversity. Um, sensory processing disorder being a huge one, right? Um, if there are a lot of conversations going on, if I'm working in a bullpen environment, if the lights are too bright, 
that all affects my ability to optimize my flow. So what can I as a leader do to set my people up for success, understanding that everybody's needs are different? So what do I have within the realm of my authority to, to purchase, change, remove, or modify uh, so that my people can be as successful as they can possibly be while still avoiding burnout. And that's really where we get to the empower, um, empowering the people and empowering the leaders. Um, we are working on a, a affinity group, a military employee resource group, basically, uh, where we have the opportunity to conduct training and where we have the opportunity to do some networking uh, with uh, neurodivergent individuals allies and leaders uh, across the Air Force. Um, not only that, we are also working within our local communities to establish uh, and to participate in uh, regional neurodiversity hubs, uh, reaching out to uh, MITRE, who hosts one in Washington, DC, or um, the Neurodiversity at Work uh, hub in Philadelphia. We are in the process of standing up a Rocket City Neurodiversity Hub in Huntsville. Um, looking at our youth as they transition to uh, college, into the workforce, and uh, to help them gain access to some of those opportunities that they might not otherwise have access to. Um, and then making sure that our leaders know how to lead inclusively. Um, we do that unconscious bias training so frequently uh, because it's important uh, to make sure that we check those biases in the front of our head um, because we rely so heavily on that that fast thinking brain going into Kahneman's thinking fast and slow. We, re we rely so heavily on that fast thinking system one brain uh, to help us make decisions and to help us get the job done as efficiently as possible uh, that we often lose sight of some of those biases and, and how they impact other people in that system too, brain. So we got to pull people over to, to thinking deliberately about how they are uh, promoting an inclusive environment uh, where people feel psychologically safe and they feel like they belong within the organization. And that's something that's deliberate, frequent, and incorporated into our daily processes. Uh, that's the only way we can really bring about that, that culture shift that we're looking for. Thank you, that's so well said. And I really appreciate that you um, spelled out a path forward and a framework for thinking about this. So here comes the so what question. <laughs> what happens from a national security, force development, military readiness perspective if we don't pay attention to neurodiversity? That is an amazing question. I'm really glad uh, you, you gave me the opportunity to, to jump in on this. Looking at our allies, they've recognized that uh, we need to be agile and innovative um, in specifically some of those information warfare spaces, uh, but also across the larger organization. Uh, so whether that is uh, the Aussies uh, working in conjunction with the Latrobe Center uh, to develop their uh, neurodiverse uh, diversity program within their, uh, their armed forces, whether it's the Royal Navy who has a rear admiral uh, who is open about his diagnosis and 
is very vulnerable sharing uh, some of the impacts to his career and to his leadership style. Or to the Israeli Defense Force uh, with the, and I may butcher the name, I apologize, uh, Roem Rashok, um, their neurodiversity recruiting program. Neurodivergent people uh, typically sit at a rate of employment of about 20%. Wow. And if we look at that, that is a shame because so many uh, neurodivergent people have shown us uh, how to be successful um, with, in spite of those weaknesses, uh, leveraging some of those strengths, looking at somebody like Elon Musk uh, and his ability to really think outside the box to address some of those wicked complex problems. Looking at uh, Greta Thunberg, whose inability to really understand social social norms and social cues uh, gives her a platform to speak out about climate change and start conversations. Now, either, either individual, uh, not looking at them from a political standpoint at all, um, those strengths, are in some of those challenges as well. Challenges with social cues, challenges with not conforming to the way we've always done things. Um, it requires a level of risk. We as an organization, and when I say an organization, I don't just mean Squadron Officer School, I don't mean Air University, I don't even mean the Department of the Air Force. We as a federal government need to look at risk to determine what level of risk we're willing to take uh, for the sake of innovation and what is at risk if we don't innovate at pace or ahead of our competitors. Because our competitors are looking at anything that'll give them the advantage. We need to look within to find the strength within our community that will propel us forward uh, into the future where we can be successful against some of those uh, strategic competitors. I think a here here is an order <laughs> <laughs> and a bang on the table in concurrence. Yes, I mean, you shared earlier the data point that one in 46 people is potentially neurodivergent. Can our community really afford to discount the contributions of one in every 46 people? I don't think so. Not if we're going to achieve that intellectual edge, as, as you just said. So thank you so much, Dan. Uh, what's next for you in this area? So really, our next big thing is to uh, develop a plan of action and milestones uh, to see what talent management looks like, um, focusing on neuroinclusivity within the information warfare career fields. Um, we are looking at what resources we would need, um, what training we would need, what would need to change in the realm of legislation to uh, to make sure that the military is accessible uh, to neurodivergent individuals who have the ability uh, to do some of those worldwide deployments and to operate in some of those stressful environments. Um, that's really where we need to work with our partners uh, to determine the level of support required, what is acceptable, and what is maybe not a great fit for the military. Because not every neurodivergent individual will be able to thrive in the military. Some of that rigid uh, 
focus on routine or that very uh, deontological uh, black and white approach uh, to ethics or to rules, uh, that rigidity uh, could potentially be too much of a risk. So we really need to take a look at what level of support is uh, permissible. And then we need to find a way to effectively measure it consistently uh, at all of our points of accession. Um, and that's, I would say, our biggest hurdles are changing the regulations, um, measuring uh, what we what level of risk we can accept, and then ultimately finding a way to cultivate that talent from recruitment all the way through separation or retirement. Sounds like a great plan. Is there anything else that you want to share with us today? If anybody is interested in uh, learning more, uh, you are more than welcome uh, to reach out to me uh, via my email or um, we have a presence on Mill Suites under Neurodiverse AF. Um, and uh, we also have some affinity groups that I will uh, link you into if you're interested. Right. Well, SOS and Air University is so lucky to have you, Major Kaiser. Thank you very much for spending some time talking with us today. Um, and good luck in all of your efforts. I know that they are hugely impactful. So thank you once again. Yes, ma'am. Uh, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for listening to Axon, the Air University Teaching and Learning Center podcast. Stay current on these and other ideas in military education by following us online at www.airuniversity.af.edu/tlc or on Twitter at Air Teaching.